Hello and welcome to season one of the Medici podcast, Early Medici. This is episode 12, The Founder of the Dynasty. I talked about how Giovanni de Bici de Medici reaped the benefits from his relationship with the sketchy soldier turned rival Pope John XXIII. The rest of the Medici family were not doing so well. The family had remained committed to the populist cause. Unfortunately, the conservatives also remained firmly in power since the fall of Silvestro de Medici. As a result, Various Medici, along with members of other populist families, were persecuted by the government, either barred from political office or exiled from the city. So while we can't know what his true political beliefs were by making himself a low-key ally of the conservatives, Vieri de' Medici was truly and literally saving himself and his immediate family. Giovanni de Bici would not follow in his cousin and fairy godfather's footsteps, however. He would find his own savvy way of surviving the political whirlwind and securing the legacy of his children. But before we get to that, let's talk about Giovanni de Bici himself, especially because I would argue he's the first Medici on the historical record that we can really know as a person. As you might guess from his portrait by Cristofano del Altissimo, he was not an attractive man. Also, he was quiet, uh, perhaps shy person, who was not a natural public speaker. At the same time, though, he was extremely perceptive and, and did have good political instincts, as we'll see. In 1386, he married Picarda Bueri, who came from old Florentine blue blood. She was also beautiful, in contrast to her husband. But from what little we know about their marriage, it was a happy one, and Giovanni stayed faithful. Finally, Giovanni de Bici, despite his dabbling in usury, was genuinely a pious man. In sharp contrast to his more scholarly descendants, Giovanni's personal library consisted of a whopping three books, and they were all devotional texts. He was also very much aware of the tension between the religious values of the day and his chosen line of work. In his private account book, which still survives, Giovanni de Bici records that he asked the Pope for spiritual advice about debts to untraceable or deceased creditors. The Pope told him he could atone for these by contributing 350 florins, toward the maintenance of churches in Rome. Nonetheless, don't assume that Giovanni was in any way backward. His family's reputation as sponsors of avant-garde art and architecture began with him, too. It was Giovanni de Bici who commissioned the revolutionary engineer and architect Filippo Brunelleschi to expand the Basilica of San Lorenzo 
one of the oldest churches in Florence, in the parish church of the Medici family. Also, it was Giovanni who hired a former goldsmith's apprentice, who went by the alias Donatello, to make sculptures to decorate the church. I'll probably revisit this topic in a future episode about the Renaissance more specifically. But notably, Brunelleschi's design for the church's sacristy, the part of the interior where the clergy prepare for services, broke with the old Gothic style, instead using Corinthian columns and rounded arches that were reminiscent of ancient Roman buildings and would become a characteristic of Renaissance architecture. Outside of grandiose, high-profile projects, Giovanni was known to befriend struggling artists, one of whom was Masaccio, a pioneer in the Renaissance style of painting, who was one of the earliest painters to use vanishing point and linear perspective. Now, while the Medici might owe their historic reputation as great patrons of art to Giovanni, although, to be fair, they weren't the only rich family giving work to artists, architects, and writers in Florence. They already were loved and hated in Florence, depending on who you talk to, for championing populist policies. However, you could argue it was Giovanni who came up with the family's original recipe for political success. Even so, Giovanni himself seems to have been a reluctant operator. He stayed out of any political offices until 1402 when he accepted the diplomatic job that would put him into contact with his great benefactor, Pope John XXIII. And even then, it wasn't until 1407 when he took his first significant post as the governor of the town of Pistoia. Unlike his famous relative Salvestro, Giovanni was a master at keeping a low profile while still making waves. I like the way Brunetto Dami, a historian from the 19th century who wrote the only biography of Giovanni de Bici I could find in English or Italian, put it. Quote, he acquired, without making noise, popularity with the Florentine public. Machiavelli would probably agree, writing in his History of Florence that, quote, he asked for no honors, yet he received them all. Above anything else, Giovanni was patient and climbed the political ladder very slowly. Possibly it wasn't even calculated. Instead, perhaps he was a rare type of creature, an unambitious politician. It probably helped that the situation in Florence was nice and dull. Around the start of the 15th century, aside from the occasional exiled or disenfranchised populist, there were no riots, no conspiracies, and no wars. And as always happens when things are nice and dull, the people in power turned on each other. The mantle of de facto leader of the conservatives passed from Meso degli Albizzi to Niccolo da Uzzano. While Meso could at least claim to be the son of the guy who shepherded the conservatives back to power, Niccolo was just another rich banker. So he had plenty of rivals jockeying for his place at the top of the heap. In fact, at least according to Machiavelli, these rivals actually helped the Medici and the populist cause behind the scenes just to undermine him. While the conservatives schemed against each other, the long period of peace and stability was drawing to a dramatic close. In 1423, the reigning Duke of Milan, Filippo, and I have to say I liked the way 
The English Wikipedia article describes him as, quote, cruel, paranoid, and extremely sensitive about his personal ugliness. Took advantage of a dynastic crisis among the local nobility in the northeast region of Romana to extend his reach. Afraid, as always, of Milan's appetite for territory, Florence intervened. This one confrontation would ignite a war that would split all the major powers of Italy, and some of the not-so-major powers, against each other. This war would last with a few brief interruptions for 31 years. It was the financial crisis in Florence fueled by this unending war that really drew out the bashful Giovanni and made him prove his populist bona fides. See, the Florentine system of taxation was extremely complicated and regressive. There were no property taxes and few taxes on income. Instead, most of the government's income came from tariffs, tolls, sales taxes, and a poll tax. In times of wars and other emergencies, the government would impose forced loans on rich citizens. In compensation, the giver of the loan would receive interest paid by the government and allowing the lender to sell the government's debt to another if they so chose. This meant the tax burden, especially in times of stress, fell on everyone, regardless of their income, while the wealthy had ways of gaming the forced loan system to maximize their profit from interest payments or selling debt. This already cumbersome system was made even more so when, in 1425, the government established the Monte delle Doti, the Mountain of Donations. Made in response to the fact that dowries required for marriage had become increasingly unaffordable for the middle class since the Black Death. The Monte was a state-run bank in which deposits were made by families so that their daughters might one day be guaranteed a dowry. The government was committed to pay a three and three-eighths percent interest on all deposits. It was meant to help the middle class and the poorer ranks of the nobility. However, the system only really benefited the already rich, who of course could make the largest deposits and get returns on the government dime. By just 1470, the government's financial obligation to the Monte della Doti was an annual 198,000 florins. As the years of the war dragged on, even as they led to a victory for Florence and its allies, the obvious problems with the system became more glaring, and the calls for an overhaul of the tax system got louder. The conservatives responded the way reactionaries often do throughout history, identify as a real problem as the people talking about the problem, and not the problem itself. In 1426, the conservatives tried to push through a constitutional reform thinly disguised as an administrative tweak that would have halved the number of representatives from the minor guilds and replaced them with nobles and members of the major guilds. Apparently, the conservatives tried to court the support of Giovanni de' Medici in this, but he refused and rebuked one of the leading conservatives, Rinaldo degli Albizzi, telling him that his father Meso would have never tolerated such a scheme to openly disenfranchise the people. Instead, Giovanni helped defeat the conservatives' bill, 
and instead helped pass a new system called the Catasto. Requiring citizens to register their property and revenues, the Catasto replaced the poll tax and most of the sales taxes with property taxes and taxes on revenues from rents. In modern terms, it replaced an old indirect regressive system of taxation with a more direct progressive system. Of course, opposition came from the wealthy, but the change in Giovanni de' Medici coming out publicly in favor of the reform boosted the Medici family's popularity and influence. However reluctant Giovanni de' Medici was about diving into politics, he was also extremely savvy. He always insisted that his family wear the clothing of the middle classes, so they never appeared that high above the masses. Also on his deathbed, he advised his sons to always be friends with the people and to never make them false promises or expect honors from them. The tax reform became Giovanni's most consequential political act. It would also be his last. By this point, at the age of 60, Giovanni had also retired from banking, handing the reins of the business to his living sons, Cosimo and Lorenzo. At a certain point, it seems Giovanni was no longer worried about politics or profit. Of course, many people throughout history in Catholic Europe who were in a position to do so left behind some kind of donation to the church to try to ensure the well-being of their soul. However, even by the standards of his time, Giovanni was haunted enough by the stain of usury that he went to extraordinary lengths. After all, tax records show that Giovanni went from being the 48th richest man in Florence in 1403 to the second richest by the time of his death. And you don't make such a leap without committing a few sins, at least. According to Giovanni's postmortem instructions, Two members of the clergy serving in the Basilica of San Lorenzo had to say Mass for Giovanni de' Bici's soul every day in perpetuity. They even had to alternate between the two chapels of the church, and there were supposed to be provisions made in case one of the two was detained or ill. Not only that, but Giovanni instructed that two offices for the dead had to be said for his soul one during the Feast of St. John the Evangelist in December, and the other on the Feast of Saints Cosmas and Damien in September. When Giovanni de' Bici finally passed away on February 20th, 1429, his final instructions asked that he be buried under the sacristy of the church. This, too, was a very unusual request, even in a highly religious era. In his essay, Saving the Soul of Giovanni de' Bici de' Medici, Function and Design in the Old Sacristy of San Lorenzo, Paul Davies writes, The idea that San Lorenzo's sacristy was a treasury housing the church's relic collection helps us understand why it was such a good choice for Giovanni de' Bici. He was buried not just close to the saints, but in ad sectus position, equivalent to the prime position in front of the high altar of the church. Indeed, by comparison, he must have seen the old sacristy as having greater potential benefit for his soul. Being interred in front of a whole relic collection would have appeared far more advantageous 
than being interred in front of just one or two in the high altar. Moreover, as it was widely believed that saints were more powerful when they worked in concert, Giovanni de Bici could have imagined himself all the more blessed. I can't help but wish more rich financiers had the conscience of a Giovanni de Bici. In any case, as Giovanni himself recognized, the world was changing. In any case, as Giovanni himself must have recognized during his lifetime, his world was changing. Thousands of art were rapidly being altered, more so than anyone alive had ever witnessed. Perhaps Giovanni also knew, despite his apparent lack of interest in non-religious texts, that there had been a revolution in scholarship as well. These shifts will be the subject of the first episodes of our second season, The Golden Age. Because I'll need to catch up on research, and honestly, I could use a bit of a break, the second season will start in about a month. But I do hope that you'll join us again. In the meantime, I plan on finally having the bonus episode about Dante available. Also, I'll be starting a YouTube channel that will include episodes from the um, first two seasons, or season zero and season one. I kind of wish now that I hadn't numbered it like that, but anyway. Of course, these uh, YouTube episodes will not just be me talking into the void, like the podcast, but will involve images. So, in any case, I hope you stick with us as we finally get to join the Medici as they move from being a family of bankers to European royalty and changing the world of art and literature along the way. I hope you all enjoy your summer and buona notte.